Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Job. The foot's getting better, but as of yet, I am still gimp. Smitty, you and I are going to have a race next week. We'll see who wins. (laughs) He said he put a motor on it. Job 4 and 5, just a stunning couple of chapters. And and so uh, I don't want to start by reading them all. We'll read them as we work through it this morning instead. A little bit different than what I normally do or how we normally do that, but um, we want to we want to be able to um, work through it together. And so, uh, our big takeaway this week will simply be this: theological half truths are whole lies that increase the sorrow of the suffering. Back in the Gulf War, the Western nations realized something about Russian tanks T seventy and then or T seventy two and the T eighty four and now the T ninety. They call it the the jack-in-the-box effect. What they've discovered is if they hit it with a round in the turret where the thinnest armor is, it sets off every other round in the tank because of a design flaw. And so it has the cumulative effect of not just hitting the tank once, but it's like shooting it 45 times at the same time. And the top literally blows off into the air like a jack-in-the-box. It goes flying through the air. I never understood that toy as a kid. It just seemed to frighten children, right? And it goes flying. And so they, are, they capitalized on that, and it absolutely aided in the development of the Javelin missile, and the Ukrainians are using it to great effect now. And there are dead Russian tanks everywhere. And it all has to do with the fact that one round, when a round is in the chamber, it uses an auto-feed system. Uh, American tanks, uh, they have to load the rounds one at a time, but each round is loaded, and all the other rounds are kept behind blast doors. So if the tank takes a hit, and here's the difference. The Russian tanks were designed to shoot as fast as they could. The American tanks were designed to protect the crew. And they were willing to shoot slower for the safety of the crew. Uh, it, takes, it costs too much, takes too long, and the loss of life is too great. And so we want to capitalize all the time on our enemy's weaknesses. That's just the way it is. It's what Hannibal did at Cannae with the Roman legions coming in. You're like, oh my word, Steve's now nerding out on history. Yes, that's true. And how we defeat them, and so he surrounded them, and they pressed in to the point the Roman soldiers couldn't even swing their swords. They killed 70,000 Roman legionnaires in one day, captured another 10,000, only 3,000 fled away. It was one of the biggest upsets in Roman military history because they capitalized on the weakness of their opponents. That's how enemies think of one another. What's the weakness, and let me exploit it. Well, it's interesting that Paul tells us that we're not unaware of the tactics of our enemy Satan and how he is seeking to defeat us. And this morning we get one of those on full display. What more can he do to Job? And he shows up yet again in these two chapters and what he wants to go after is he wants to use friends in a powerful way to increase Job's suffering. And just like he will do thousands of years later with Christ, the temptation in the desert, He's going to twist truth. He's going to leave out key elements that make them lies that just increase suffering. And so for us, we look at Job and we see this as salt being rubbed in the wound. We see this as increasing suffering. Uh, We see this as breaking a bruised reed, snuffing out a smoldering wick. I know for sure that Christians won't abandon the faith. The the -the jack-in-the-box effect will not be their final death right if you're saved you will endure until the end but this morning we're going to have the opportunity to see significant ways that our enemy attacks us and here's the scariest part of it he uses believers to hurt a believer these are well-intentioned guys they're the only people that have come to job they've traveled ostensibly to support him and to give comfort and they are going to only increase his pain and so this morning we want to learn truths that will bolster our hearts that help us but i'll be honest with you there's another part of me that we want to approach this sermon in such a way that we want to protect the vulnerable from lies of the enemy and even terrible counsel from others i'm kind of hardwired uh to not like bullies right Uh, first fight ever got into i was in kindergarten 
I have problems, right? <laughs> like, and what happened was my brother, my older brother, was in second grade, and every day there was this sixth grader in elementary school that would pick on him and bully him. And it drove me nuts. And I'm this little half-day kindergartner. And so I waited till that sixth grader was standing outside the school at the top of steps, and I ran as hard as I could, as fast as I could, and hit him as hard as I could right in his belly and knocked him down the steps. And then ran after him and jumped on top of him. They had to pull me off. I was like a little crazy kid. But my mindset was, you're not going to bully my brother. And when we come to this text this morning, I want you to understand, there are hurting people all around us, and there are hurting people in this room. And the worst thing that they can be exposed to is bully tactics from bad theology that only increase their pain. So we want to walk through this this morning to help us to understand the theological half-truths or whole lies that actually increase the sorrow of suffering. Now, the way it's structured is... Uh, is very interesting. It's two chapters. It's all from this one guy, Eliphaz the Timonite. That's really about all we know about him. Um, the only point of that is that we know he's wealthy. We know that he is a leader. We know that he is looked to as having some kind of wisdom. He's a Job-like figure in his area. That's about all we're told. And so what we have is two chapters that are really a lengthy sermon. And it's a three-point sermon. He, and, it, and it kind of builds like climbing a mountain. He gives point one and point two. He hits this mountain peak moment uh, kind of halfway through chapter 4, that is fueling everything he's saying, why he thinks he's right. And then he gives chapter three, or point 3. If he had one point in his sermon, if he had a big takeaway in his sermon, it would be this, um, humbly repent and be restored. That'd be his sermon. And yet he's in terrible error because we know Job doesn't need to repent. We know that God has said that Job is righteous and he's blameless, and none of Job's suffering is because of Job's sin. He's in the middle of puzzling pain, not wrath. He's not experiencing discipline. This is not the result of foolish indiscretions. This is a result of puzzling pain to prove that his love for God is genuine and real. And so we're going to just follow Eliphaz's sermon. We'll do point one and point two. We'll take some time at the peak. We'll hit point three. We'll disagree with him all along the way. We'll agree and disagree all along the way, point out the truths, and then we'll arrive, I think, at the end at hope. So point number one finds itself right here in verses one through eight of chapter four. And the point would very simply be this, you reap what you sow. That's his point. And we actually have theological agreement with that, but let's see what Eliphaz has to say. Chapter 4 of Job, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you're impatient. It touches you, and you're dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Eliphaz gives two indications here that he thinks that Job's going to agree with him and that Job will believe exactly what he's saying. The first one is when he uses that phrase in verse 6 when he says, is not. He's kind of saying, like, Job, didn't you think this also? Or you definitely think this. The second one, though, is that he indicates Job was the kind of guy who would go to other people that were sermoning, suffering excuse me, and preach the same sermon. He's saying, Job, didn't you go and tell other people the same thing I'm telling you? You reap what you sow. Um, people that have weak hands in verse 3 and capable of doing for themselves. Or feeble knees, they're discouraged in verse 4. Eliphaz is saying, Job, I'm only saying to you what you have said to everybody else. Now, I want you to know that in and of itself is devastating. Because what he's telling Job is, physician, heal thyself. And it dismisses the depth of his agony and of his suffering. And can I just encourage you, exhort you, plead with you pastorally. When someone is in deep grief, they don't need to hear this from you. We already know what to do. You just need to start doing it. But that's essentially what Eliphaz is saying to Job. But he takes the agreement of verse fur, uh, uh, further, and he reveals what he really thinks of Job in verse 6. What does he mean there when he talks about Job's integrity? Is not your fear of God, your confidence, the integrity of ways, your hope. He, he really means, Job, take your medicine. Take this medicine from me. You reap what you sow. You're in this spot. You know you're in this spot because you've done wrong. 
to make it right with God. And what Eliphaz doesn't understand or he isn't processing through is not all suffering is a result of sin. There can be puzzling pain. When we deal with people that are struggling, Paul in 1 Thessalonians helps us substantially, and he categorizes people in three ways. He says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, the patience there is long endurance of dealing with them. And so we know that they should be, there should be a, a persistent endurance of dealing with folks. But here's the categories. The first one is admonish the idle. What that means is to rebuke people who ought to know better. They know better and they're not doing it, so you rebuke them. If someone knows the truth and they don't do it, it's what? Sin. For him to know to do right and not do it, it's sin. And he says, when you've got people and they're sinful, and it's interesting, the word there, by using idle, it's laziness. Rebuke lazy people. Now, this is in a spiritual context. What he's telling us is you rebuke spiritually lazy people. Second category, though, is you encourage the faint-hearted. These are people that are overwhelmed. They're trying, but they, they can't seem to get there. They, they are at wit's end. They're exhausted. Uh, and so he says, you give them courage. Literally, to encourage means to give courage. Well, what do you need courage? You need courage to keep on the fight. You need courage to keep on the right way. You need courage to keep on keeping on, right? And so people that are faint-hearted, they need someone to come in their life and speak words of encouragement. Let me remind you of the truth of your identity in Christ. Let me remind you of the truth of God's gift in your life. Let me remind you of the opportunities to give you. Let me remind you of what he's called you to do. Let me encourage you. Let me walk beside you. Let me weep with you while you're weeping. Let me rejoice with you while you're rejoicing. I'm going to encourage the faint-hearted. Thirdly is to help the weak. Now, every time Paul uses that kind of language, he's not talking about physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually weak. He's talking about the weak in conscience, people who need to be taught. And so if we think of it this way, there are things that God has called each one of us to do. And sometimes we don't do them because we're being spiritually lazy. We need rebuke. Sometimes we don't do the things we're supposed to be doing because we feel like we're trying and we're never quite getting there. We need someone to come in our life say, let me walk with you, let me help bear your load, let me help encourage you to keep on, press on in this. And then sometimes people aren't doing it because they don't know. And they need to be instructed. And all of them require patience because frankly, and, and if you've had any discipleship experience in your life at all, every one of the people in these categories at some point annoys the fire out of you. Just do what you're supposed to do. Come on, you can make it. I've already said this once. How many times do I have to tell you, right? The problem is Eliphaz has Job pegged into one of these categories, and he's got him in the wrong category. He thinks Job needs rebuke. What does Job really need? Encouragement. That's what he needs. Now, this is profoundly difficult pastorally. Because I'm preaching, I don't know, 80 people, 70 people. I guarantee there's people in every category right now, right there. And so if I hammer it with rebuke, the ones that are faint-hearted and the ones that are weak, weak are like, whoa, I didn't know any better. Faint-hearted are like, I'm trying. Right? If all you do is encourage the faint-hearted, that's right, man, I'm just like so tired. No, you have wrong priorities. Get life right. Do what God called you to do. If you come along and try to instruct, everybody thinks, oh, I already knew that. It's profoundly difficult. It's complex. But the real danger here is when you're coming into someone's life who's hurting, you peg them wrong. It's like every to a hammer, everything's a nail. And that's what Eliphaz is doing to, to Job. And so in one sense, we do agree, though, right? Like, what are we supposed to do then? Because you do reap what you sow. The Bible makes it very clear all through the Bible. Read Proverbs, read Ecclesiastes, read Galatians. You reap what you sow. God has not mocked whatever man sows, that what he always reaps. So what are we supposed to never say that to someone that's hurting? Because sometimes people are hurting because they have sown and they're reaping. Look, if I had stepped out in my garage and I didn't break my foot because I slipped on a rug and missed a step, you know, and that's not even a good story. Um, it's, it's like lame. But what if I was angry with my wife or my kids and I walked out in the garage and I kicked my tire and that's how I broke my, my toe? It's a whole different issue, isn't it? I kind of had that one coming. I, I reaped what I sowed, right? I didn't, re I, I didn't sow for this, but here I got it. And so what are we supposed to do then? Because sometimes people are suffering and they're reaping what they're sowing. But we're dealing with Job here. And, and so how do we think through this? Well, that's not all of it, though. It's a half-truth. 
You reap what you sow, but the timing of the harvest is not always clear. You may not know what's going on right now. Let me, let me just illustrate. What's the difference between these two fields? Visibly, nothing. They are both we would describe as barren. And yet I know one of them was sown and one of them wasn't. When we come into someone's life and they're hurting and they're struggling, the truth is we do reap what we sow. But sometimes, listen now, the season of germination looks just like the season of barrenness, but they're not the same. What's the difference between those fields? Well, that's obvious, right? Suddenly you see fruitfulness. Suddenly it's obvious to everyone. Sowing and reaping is true. You reap what you sow, but the time of the harvest is not clear. That's positive, right? And, and, and negative towards sinners. In Romans 2, chapter 4, God said this, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Sometimes people persist in their sin, thinking God's okay with what they're doing. They simply haven't reaped yet what they've sown. That's his kindness to them. Like, it's coming right? You're going to give an answer. You're going to give an account. Other times it's positive. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, some sow, some water, God gets the the harvest. And he goes in chapter 4, he said, "What, what matters for a servant is they be counted as faithful. And what Paul is saying is sometimes you will do ministry. Listen to this. Please look at me. Look at me. Some of you guys taking notes. Great. I love that. Just look at me for a moment because you desperately need to hear this. God has called you to be faithful, and at times it will be in the face of no obvious fruit. None. And that can happen in your marriage, in your evangelism, in your parenting. It can happen in the life of a church. And if we only live in the half-truth, you reap what you sow, and we stop there, you will give up. Because it will feel barren all the time. But God doesn't give us this perfect timeline, does he? I mean, I've shared this with you before. I I don't even know if this encourages moms. I I hope it's not a discouragement. From Proverbs 31, you know, it's like next Sunday's Mother's Day. I'm going to preach on on Proverbs 31 and tell you all the ways you're not perfect. No, I'm not doing that. But it talks about a woman's children like olive shoots rising up and calling her blessed. And it takes 18 years from planting an olive tree branch bush whatever you want to call it till you get some fruit off 18 years that's a long time of looking like a barren field we have the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years before she's healed 12 years in total poverty because she spends everything to try to get doctors fix her we have the man who's born blind and yet it comes for the glory of god and healing what is the difference between the fields? It's obvious once fruitfulness happens, once it's apparent, but God has never once promised for obvious fruit here. Now it's his blessing when we receive that. The problem is not the reality of sowing and reaping. The problem is what might be happening is germinating. And there's no room in Eliphaz's theology for that reality. And the result is this. When you don't, this is a clue how you'll know that there's no room for that in your theology or that you're not rightly balancing this theology. You will condemn what seems to you to be barrenness. You will condemn sufferers instead of comforting the grieving. So what should we say? We should say you reap what you sow. And so you know what, Job? God's got the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans. Their day is coming. It is. Job, you will reap what you sow. You have been a righteous man, burdened spiritually, helping the, the, the people that are dispossessed. You've helped orphans and widows. You've protected people. Job, God has not forgotten you. You reap what you sow. Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God will make all things beautiful in His time. Listen, not our time, in His time. And so that's Eliphaz's first point. We see already where he's going astray. His second point happens here in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. And that's that God's judgment is powerful. And again, it's one that we would half agree with. Verse 9 of chapter 4, by the breath of God they perish. He's talking about God judging those that have done wickedly. And by the blast of his anger they are consumed, the roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. 
Job, you might remember in his, he called out this untamable beast, right? The Leviathan. He says, God, send the Leviathan to, the, to chaotically consume everything, all of my life. And so Eliphaz kind of makes a play on it. And so Eliphaz, listen, doesn't pick a um, supernaturally chaotic beast. It was kind of in their mythology. It was a real animal, but mythologically taken on bigger meaning than, than just this monster in the sea. And so instead, Eliphaz picks the most fierce, powerful land animal in their area. Hmm, who could he be talking about? The, the one with all the respect, all the power, all the authority. This is a very thinly veiled shot at Job. Very thinly veiled. It would be like saying, Job, you're the lion of this area. And so what he's saying is God is powerful even over the lions, and he can step in and judge them. He can shatter them. Even the rich, powerful, and the clever will answer to God in his judgment and wrath because God's judgment is powerful. And to that we say amen and thank you, Lord, because it seems like the rich get away with everything. you got enough money to hire the right attorney. you got enough money to judge. you got enough power, enough influence, enough friends. It seems like there's no justice for them. Where is the justice for Putin? Where is the justice for American politicians who who fleece their people? Where is the justice uh, when the housing bubble popped and all these guys you know, cashed in their hedge funds and moved to the Bahamas? Where's the justice? And so we rejoice. The truth is God is over the powerful. He is over the influential. He judges with equity or total perfect justice in his time and in his way. And we rejoice in that. And so no one is so powerful, so influential, that they will forever escape God's judgment. And so we rejoice. The problem is this. God's judgment is powerful, but it's not toward the believer. (laughs) It's not. We don't live under his wrath. Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, from the wrath of God. Now, I don't have time to go all the way back to Romans chapter 5, but you know what the first five verses are of Romans chapter 5? They're all about a believer suffering. And so we rejoice in it because it's going to build character and it's going to bring hope. And this is the reminder, because you and I are tempted when we're suffering to assume this is God's wrath. It may be God's discipline. There's a radical difference between discipline and wrath for the believer. Job's isn't even discipline. But it's certainly not God's wrath on him. We rejoice that God doesn't look upon people and say, well, they're rich and powerful. I better not judge them. Ah, they're poor and weak. I'll get them. We rejoice that God has total equity and righteous judgment. But the believer is not suffering under the wrath of God because Jesus takes all of that wrath on him for us. We are sinners. We are condemned. We deserve hell and eternal justice and jesus steps in out of god's great love and dies for us and he takes all of god's wrath for us so that if we would believe in jesus and turn from our sin he has assumed all of the wrath of god and we are saved and we are declared and made righteous we can suffer in this sin fallen world just because we live in a sin fallen chaotic world we suffer because of sin and creation not because of our own personal sin Beyond that, we recognize that there's a supernatural evil at work in this world called Satan and his demons doing harm. The suffering need to hear what then about this truth that God's judgment is powerful? The suffering need to hear of God's justice against their abusers. They need to hear of God's justice against the wickedly powerful. They need to hear of God's justice against Satan that is coming. They need to hear that God is bigger than all of this, and yet he loves them deeply. He sorrows with and for them. He seeks to minister grace to their wounds god's judgment is powerful but it is not toward the believer so eliphaz has two points in this wayward now heretical sermon that's just devastating to job and can i just tell you something i'm just confessionally i'm gonna say this i've had people in moments of grief bring both those points to bear in my life and be just as wrong and it is so painful I'll be really honest, it's actually friendship ending 
because you can't defend yourself. How does Paul defend him? How does Job defend himself? He can't. And then I'll go one step further confessionally. I don't know that I've spoken that to people. I very well may have because I know this. I've thought that about people. God forgive me. Uh, Job is good because he's encouraging, but boy, is he convicting. And so where is all this coming from? How does, how does Eliphaz have such hubris? I mean, he sits there for seven days uh, saying nothing. He finally listens to Job, and this is, what, this is the sermon he comes up with? Wow, how does he get there? Well, we get to this mountain peak moment, and there's supernatural authority that Eliphaz thinks that he has. And we see this, and it starts in verse 12 of chapter 4. And what he's going to do, he's going to give us a vision, and then we're going to see how that informs the way he thinks, right? And, and so it's, it's pretty fascinating. This is one of those I'm studying this week, and I'm like, oh, wow. I didn't know this was here. This is an epic nightmare. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 4. Now, a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. And then I heard a voice. It's like a horror movie. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust. In his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth, between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die in that without wisdom? Now, <clears throat> the question is, and we have no reason to not believe Eliphaz that he has this vision, the question is, what is this vision? Who is it? Where is it? Why is it? And so we can actually walk through the clues. First of all, its nature is pretty creepy and not holy. There's lots of dreams and visions in the Bible. There's lots of moments where people are initially terrified because it's an angel or even the pre-incarnate Christ, which in the Old Testament, he's called the, the angel of the Lord when it uses that personal identifier, the angel of the Lord frequently. It's a pre-incarnate Christ. It's, there's lots of times where people are shocked and amazed and what you immediately find with them is comfort and reassurance. It's a holy moment. There's clarity in the moment. There's direct communication. And there's not this intense fear. What we never have anywhere in the Bible is God showing up to give somebody a message in a way that just terrifies them to the core, but it's supposed to be a good message for somebody else. Secondarily, the content is, as the kids these days say, sus. Um, we start working through this and we're like, What? So, so let's just ask, is this, could this really be an angel from the Lord? Is this a messenger from the, the throne room of heaven? We've gotten peaks in the throne room of heaven. And part of the narrator telling us and prepping us for that in chapter 1 and 2 was to prepare us for the supernatural world that's going on around us. Well, so let's look at the content. First of all, in verse 17, he says, this spirit speaking to him says, it's impossible. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? It's saying that man cannot be right or pure before God. He's actually affirming to Eliphaz what Eliphaz already thinks about reaping and sowing. Job's suffering, he did something bad. You ever driven by a homeless person and thought, that's because you don't want to work? That's because you do bad things. You're driven back to past a prison complex? I thought, well, that's because you, you, you look at, that's where you go. This heavy mindset of you always reap what you sow. So Eliphaz is looking, and this spirit's just affirming it. Nobody's right before God. Nobody. So get over it. Well, what does Job 1.8 say, though, about Job? The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So you're telling me God said that about Job in Job 1, but now he sends an angel to say, no man is right before God. You go on, the Spirit goes on and says, God doesn't trust his servants. 
Even in his servants, he puts no trust. What did Job 2, 3 say? The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him, destroy him without reason. Again, the Spirit's contradicting what God said. Lastly, the Spirit cites in verse 18, you know what God does? He even judges his angels. Hmm, wait a minute. Who is going to be revved up about that? And then lastly, he has this long diatribe where he's complaining about the weakness of humans. He compares us, <laughs> you know, this, this Spirit is thinking, like, how much better I am than the people, than humanity. They live in the dirt. They play in the dirt. They live in these, they make these ramshackle little houses that a moth's wings, the wind from a moth's wings would make them collapse. Look how frail they are. What is God's view of humanity? He says, he made them a little lower than the angels, yet they are destined for greater glory. So whoever this spirit is, get this now, disagrees with what God says about Job, disagrees with what God says about humanity, is irritated that angels get judged, and he hates man. I wonder who that could be. This is a satanic vision. This is a demon or Satan himself that has shown up to fuel Eliphaz's thinking, and it has a disastrous conclusion. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. This is Eliphaz's immediate response. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? Talking directly to Job. To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I've seen the fool taking root. Now, I want to pause here in a moment before I read through these. Because what Eliphaz is about to say to his friend is absolutely stunning. Like, if you were to make a top ten list of worst things to say to Job, this is like the top four, right? Like, bam. How can I make Job suffer more? What could I say to make him feel more miserable? And so why would you do that? Let's, let's just pause a moment. Why would you say something that we're going to see in just a moment is astoundingly cruel? It's shocking, the kind of things people say. I read of one lady she had two children and tragically their youngest child uh, passed away in a drowning accident in a pool and she had what she considered one of her best friends come to her Uh, and her best friend looked at her and said well at least you still have one and i remember reading this article and she was saying she thought that was the worst thing you could say to a parent who's just lost a child. But then you fast forward three years later and a different friend came to her because she was expecting. And she said, yeah, me and my husband have been praying for your replacement baby. You choose which one's worse. I'm going to let God condemn them both one day. Like, how do you say these things? What would free you to say something so cruel to someone you supposedly love. Eliphaz feels the power of what he believes is this supernatural vision, and he feels the freedom to speak cruelly and with a level of arrogance and pride and theological assurance because he's so wrong about the source. And so it sets him on fire. He feels a boldness because he's convinced he's right. Now look at what he says. He's supposedly talking about a fool. Verse 3. I've seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. What he means by that is I've seen someone, I wonder who, who is a fool, I wonder who, who lost all respect. His children are far from safety. It's hard to read these next words. They are crushed in the gate. There's no one to deliver them. This is after Job has been told his children were crushed into their house. Who could he be talking about? The hungry eat his harvest. He takes it even out of thorns. The thirsty pant after his wealth. Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. 
he literally grocery lists every one of Job's sufferings. And this, there's no other way. You earned it, Job. You are a fool. It's your fault your children are dead. It's your fault all the flocks are gone. It's your fault all your servants are dead. It's your fault, Job. And it's even more shocking, and this goes into the next part of his sermon, what he says in verse 8. As for me, I would seek God. I mean, I mean, like, let's just be honest. Let's be honest. It's carnal. I know it. But if you could go back a couple thousand years, how many of you would like to give this guy a shot in the mouth? Right? You're like, dude, can someone muzzle you? What is your problem? This is a callous heart that Eliphaz develops as a result of his theological arrogance. None of this comes out of the blue, Job. If you live like this, this is, what would you, this is what you get. You know what I would do? I would actually humble myself before God and seek him. And so Eliphaz is communicating a degree of kind of resentful irritation with Job. Because Job has been suffering, as we saw last week. This has been going on for months at this point. He just sat there for a week watching Job. And the first thing he hears Job say is Job's lament that doesn't end in trust. Eliphaz is frankly a little annoyed with him at this point. It's like, Job, like, repent. That's what I would do. If all ten of my kids were killed, I'd repent. If I'd lost all respect, I'd repent. If I'd lost every, all my goods, all my economics, if my wife had abandoned me like this, I would repent. Commit your cause to God. That's his perspective. And so then he goes to the next point of his sermon. In chapter 5, and it goes from verse 8 all the way to the end of the chapter. And it's this. No one is innocent, but God blesses the humble. Well, that sounds like a good sermon. And actually, stunningly, what Eliphaz says here, because we agree with that, but it's just a half-truth, which we'll unpack in a moment, but he gives some of the most beautiful language most poetic language about what salvation does. And so let's, let's just read through that, and I'll make notes as we go along. He says this, As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. Verse 8, verse 9, Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that the hands receive no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to an end. So he's saying, look at how God just deals with it. Look at the way God runs the economy of the earth. He, he waters the fields and we're, we're uh, agrarian or farming culture, so we need what You ain't got to water, crops die. God sends water to the field and he deals with people that think that they can outsmart everybody else, right? I know better than everybody else. God still, he's got that. In, in his care, he's in, he's in control. Verse 14, they meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at new day in the night. And so they're going to suffer. It's going to cost them. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. But then God shows up. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds. He's wounded you, Job, but God binds up. He shatters Job, but he heals. He will deliver you from six troubles and seven, no evil shall touch you. And we, we looked several weeks ago, that's the, this Hebrew kind of poetic way of saying the completeness, the totality of your life when you give a number plus one. In famine, he'll redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword. Just like Eliphaz previously kind of grocery list Job's problems in a thinly veiled way, he now does this. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. The shepherds go in and out of the city. We'll find out later in chapter 7. They make up songs about Job and they mock him. When he stood in the assembly, no one would help him. He's telling Job, these are the things God will do for you, Job. At destruction and famine, you'll laugh. There's going to come a day, Job, when you will laugh about all this that you've lost. And shall not fear the beasts of the earth, for you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. In other words, listen, what, what does that mean, the stones of the field? Don't farmers take stones out of the field? And aren't they worried about beasts coming in and stealing their flocks? He's saying you're so restored, you're so healthy, even when someone tries to mess you up, it turns out to your benefit. It's like, 
It, this would be like one of those movies where Job goes out and he's digging in his field. And he's got this huge rock and he's like, man, how do I get rid of this rock? It's like nothing he could do goes bad. He is King Midas. So he digs this rock up. And when he digs the rock up, a brand new fountain, spring water, frees out. And he's like, wow, now I got water through the fields. This is amazing. It'd be like modern day. You, you go and you're trying to build a house and you got a piece of property and you just keep running into problem after problem after problem. What are you going to do? How are you going to get forward? you got contractors uh, messing with you, and you're like, oh, man, let me just go out to the job site. You're walking the property, and you look over. There's all these rocks in your grass, and then suddenly you see one that's shining, and it's gold. You're like, oh, praise the Lord for rotten contractors who didn't plow my field. Now i got gold. Your well digger comes out. He's digging your well, and he's like, yeah, I, just, I keep running this bedrock. It's going to cost you five grand more. Oh, okay, keep digging. Calls you back the next day. Dude, I don't know what to tell you, but you got oil coming out of your ground. What? <laughs> what more bad thing can happen? That's what he's telling Job life will be like. You know what he's saying? He's saying that even the sufferings of this life, we'll look back and say they were good. You shall know that your tent is at peace. You know what that means? It's safe. You think Job might have a little PTSD if they ever have children again? We know the end of the story he will fear concern what's going to happen he says you'll rest you shall inspect your field and miss nothing you shall know that your offspring your children will be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth he's telling job job i know you've lost all 10 if you would just repent if you would just repent the day will come where you're bouncing them on your knee like a grandpa you shall come to your grave in ripe old age these boils are going to heal up on you job like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out, it is true. Hear and know it for your good. Now we agree this. There is no one innocent before God. There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. All have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We agree with Eliphaz that the arrogant think that they're sinless. It's at the core of the gospel. We are sinners. We deserve God's wrath. We need his forgiveness. There's some beautiful statements here about God's mercy toward them. It's great. It feeds the earth and it comforts the soul. All of these are beautifully true pictures of what salvation looks like. But it's not what Job needs right now because he's not suffering for his sin. No one is innocent, but in Christ the repentant are already made righteous. The indication, the insinuation is this. Job, you're not experiencing these things because you're not righteous but what did god say about job he's righteous romans 6 3 through 4 do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into christ jesus were baptized into his death we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in newness of life you know, it's interesting because Paul actually quotes Eliphaz in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, you might remember when, when Paul is addressing the false teachers of Corinth, he quotes Eliphaz and he says, their craftiness will be found out. And he's using it in an ironic way because what he's saying is the, the false teachers in Corinth, you think you're wise, God's going to prove you wrong. It's ironic that Eliphaz says, you think you're clever, you're going to be proven wrong because the one who gets proven wrong at the end of the book of Job, God condemns Eliphaz and the other three friends that show up and says, you need Job to offer sacrifices for you. The irony is you were passing judgment, but I judge you. No one is innocent, but in Christ we stand forgiven in the righteous robes of Jesus. We are like the prodigal son who comes back and he puts on those robes of a prince, the ring of a prince, sandals on our feet, welcomes us home. We are not under his wrath. We are safe in the righteousness of Christ. Now, I want to go back to one last point that Eliphaz made to give us hope, and it's in verse 1. This is right after the vision. And what does Eliphaz say? Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? The result of the satanic vision of Eliphaz is to believe this. There is no one in heaven to stand on Job's behalf. So we can simply ask this way. 
Who stands on our behalf in heaven? It's Jesus. He is our advocate. He is the one who speaks for us. He intercedes for us. For the hurting, this is the sharpest blow. The claim that God is not for them at all. It is the cruelest thing you could say. It is the peak of loneliness. And at this moment, we get the real strategy of Satan. Take Jesus out of the life of the suffering and convince them that God doesn't really love them. The result of Eliphaz's vision is there is no, and he doesn't even understand the word Jesus. They absolutely understood the, the concept of a mediator. Remember, Job would offer sacrifices for his kids. They understood the truth of standing in the place of someone else. They got that. They knew that. And he tells Job, there's no one standing for you. You're all alone. When we bring half theological truths into the lives of the suffering, what we rob them of is Jesus. And that's Satan's goal. Romans 8. Who shall bring charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who at the right hand of God, who, in, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you see the link there between the intercession of Jesus standing, a holy one standing in heaven, and knowing the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is it sin in their suffering that makes them question, does God love me? They have Jesus as their sacrifice. Is it puzzling pain that makes them question God's love? God's love for Jesus and because of Jesus is given to us. Is it fear of the future and what might happen? God's love and plan for us, as we have seen how he worked out his plan in Jesus, is ours. There is no truth more vital for the believer suffering puzzling pain than this. Even our groanings are brought to the Father. Our complaints, our questions, our hurts, our sorrows are borne by Jesus as he petitions the Father perfectly for us. That is the balm you need to speak and keep speaking to the deeply hurting God hears. God knows. God cares. God is at work. They may not have success. I may not have success. I may not have relationships. I may have been abandoned, I may not have my health, I may not have a future here, I may not have hope, but I have Jesus. Give me more Jesus. Refresh my heart with Jesus. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. In the midnight hour when I wake up, give me Jesus. Remind me of His sacrifice, His love, and that He stands before the Father speaking my name when I can't. Still my soul with Jesus because he knows me he died for me he's forgiven me he defends me he represents me and he will give me strength I talked briefly to a friend late Thursday night he texted me very very late as I called him it was a very brief phone call I had no words for him other than this I just want to remind you Jesus is standing in heaven representing you right now he loves you and he's petitioning the father for you Oh, take comfort, he loves you. Lastly, I would tell you this. Good friends bring the one close friend. They bring Jesus into the life of the hurting. I want to encourage you to be that kind of friend in 1 John. He tells us that he's put his love in us. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love God, is what we expect to hear. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. Job has not seen God. 
And he's just been told, not only have you never seen him, Job, but there's no one even defending you in heaven. There's no one you can go to. There's no one to petition. You just need to do this, and then everything will be okay. No one has ever seen God. If we, the church, because that's who he's writing to, if we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. So then this is the, the, the answer to the blank. No one has seen God. But if we will love one another, they will see Christ. That is what the hurting need. Why couldn't Eliphaz put his arm around him and say, I love you, Job. I'm with you. I stand with you. I stand by you. I'm here till it's done. He couldn't do it. Because all he had was half the truth. When we enter into the deep grief of another, we're doing two things. First, we are assuring our own hearts that the love of God is in us. Can I just tell you, if you do not sacrificially, in an initiating way, pursue loving other people, you should seriously question, is God's love in you? Because he tells you, that's what you do. And so it actually is an assurance and a balm to your soul. You say, man, that's not me, that's God. Whew, I'm so glad he saved me. But secondarily, we assure them of God's love for them. They may ask us, why are you here? Make sure you answer them correctly. Because Jesus loves you, friend. And I didn't want the enemy of your heart to make you think you're alone. You're not. Theological half-truths are whole lies that increase the sorrow of the suffering. Truths of God's glory and love through Jesus are a balm to the sorrowing soul. I don't like to be around sorrowing people. It's a real killjoy. Let's be honest. But you know what I like more than I dislike that? I love seeing Jesus show up. I love seeing him at work in people's lives. I want to call you, exhort you as a church. Let your theology be whole truths, not half-truths. And love with the love of Christ as you pursue and enter into the lives of the grieving. Father, we thank you for correcting Eliphaz's errors. Father, we thank you that you are gentle and kind with the suffering and the grieving. Father, we want to defend them against theological bullies. And that's right to do, because it's actually, you're an advocate for the weak and the dispossessed. And so when we advocate, when we push back against theological error, we're, we're, we're walking in the shoes of Jesus. And Father, we want to do that. We want to, we want to be a balm, and, and we want to anoint the heads of the hurting. We want to drive away the, the pestilence. But Father, there are then even those of us here this morning, we have our own grief. We have our own sorrowing. And God, we just are calling to you. We're asking you to remind us of the presence and the power of Jesus. Oh, it is so good to serve a God like you. Father, we ask that you would help us, empower us to do that ministry and to receive that ministry from others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.